guys, Psychology Nerds. Welcome to Psychology and Stuff, the podcast out of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. I have a great guest for you today. She's a counseling psychologist here at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. You've heard her on episodes related to mental health literacy, and she was part of our three-part deep dive into the life of Albert Bandura. Today, she's going to talk through a recent study on empirically supported treatments. Please welcome Dr. Chris Vespia. Thank you for having me today. I feel honored. Yeah, well, and you know, as you should, because this is obviously a huge, huge deal for, for all of us. It, it is, and worldwide, as, as I understand. Absolutely. My so, understanding is we have at least one listener in Belgium. Nice. Um, yeah. Bel- is that right? Belgium? Did I say that right? Okay. Yes, you did. <laughs> For some reason, it didn't sound right. Um, all right. Now, I just... It, it's early here in the Phoenix studio, yes. so just keep that in mind as yes. we do this today. And I've just alienated our one listener in Belgium <laughs> by, by not knowing how to pronounce... Uh, yeah. So, okay. All right. So um, let's get into this. I want to quick tell the backstory here, which Absolutely. is that over the summer, I saw in my news feed uh, about a study... Um, related to, I guess I thought, or the way it was pitched, was a study on um, mental health efficacy. What I saw was an article about the study, not the actual study. I quickly forwarded it to the smartest person I know when it comes to such things, Dr. Chris Vespian said, we should talk about this on an episode. That was probably, what, about a month ago? Um, Yes. You know, when, when, Mm -hmm. when the show was off air for a little bit. And uh, she quickly responded with, yes, let's do that. So here we are. Um, let's kind of, uh, what I, w- I think I want to do is talk a little bit about the study, but kind of get into a bigger conversation about efficacy research, effectiveness research. Mm-hmm. This is stuff you and I both studied in grad school. Yes. You continue to teach about it in ways I do not. So, um, so let's, I guess, get into it. Sure. Well, and so I think it's important for listeners to understand that research has actually been a part of counseling and psychotherapy really from the beginning. I think sometimes people get the idea that, I don't know, somehow counseling is the the loosey-goosey, unscientific part of psychology. And um, however you might feel about Freud, uh, he was doing case studies and and research um, even from the beginning. Carl Rogers uh, followed suit with, um, you know, actually doing coding of of sessions and, and a variety of things. But um, probably a lot of the research goes back to Hans Eysenck in the 1950s, some of what we think of as, as um, the, the kind of research done today when Eysenck did one of the first meta-analyses on the effectiveness of counseling and psychotherapy. There has been a debate in the field, however, about how do we best go about doing this. And in fact, uh, someone you and I both know, Bruce Wampold, who's a a professor at uh, UW-Madison, wrote a book called The Great Psychotherapy Debate that actually delved into this whole idea of what's the best methodology um, for uh, looking at the effectiveness of counseling and psychotherapy. There are those who say we should do effectiveness kind of research that looks at common factors, things like empathy and the quality mm-hmm. of the therapeutic relationship, and suggests that really all of the major therapeutic approaches are effective, and no one is a whole lot more effective than, than others, and that that's what we should be looking at. Let, let's talk about those common factors for a little while, because I, I really, at least in graduate school when I was a, a more active therapist or an active sure. therapist, I was more of a common factors sort mm-hmm. of person. That was my approach. What are some of those common factors that people mm-hmm. people talk about as being 
critical. Well, I think empathy certainly mm-hmm. is one of those, and uh, that people often underestimate the the quality and importance of that in our everyday relationships when we're talking about problems. What we tend to get from others is sympathy. Right. So sorry that that's happening for you, rather than someone actually truly listening to you and trying to understand in that moment. What are you thinking? How are you feeling? What is it even like physically to be um, in the space you're occupying at that at that moment? Mm-hmm. So, you know, empathy, the quality of the therapeutic relationship, being able to tell your story. Um, what are some of the ones? And so, I'm going to turn the tables here. What are some <laughs> of the ones that uh, that you relied on as a therapist, or that made you that common factors person? Yeah, and so I don't know if this is. I mean, I think this is sort of the same as empathy, or a variation of that. But is the sort of being there with the client in the room. I think that the description that I always appreciated of, of empathy was the feeling with the client instead of feeling for the client, client. that that you are um, actually experiencing some of those motion, emotions right along with them mm-hmm. uh, as, they, uh, as they talk through them. Um, and that was the, you know, the, the, I guess my, the, the root of my approach to therapy was always this idea that like the change comes first and foremost from the relationship Mm -hmm. and trust uh empathy listening feeling heard uh, that those were all the things that were sort of necessary and sometimes sufficient Sufficient. Uh (laughs) which is uh, i think a a variation on on the necessary but not sufficient approach mm-hmm. um, and so that was always kind of my mm-hmm. my approach now granted it's been quite some time well and and I always sort of fell back on the idea that we know that the quality of the therapeutic relationship is one of the best predictors of outcome right right and and we know that from research exactly I think it's worth pointing out you know we don't just know that because we know it yes right. um, and so I, I think there's a lot to be said for that and we have strong meta-analytic studies that support Mm -hmm. the effectiveness of psychotherapy and that do support this notion that for for many in many cases there is not necessarily a huge difference in therapy a versus Mm -hmm. therapy b okay Um, but what ended up happening um, in part I think due to external forces, in part due to um, just advances in research and and a whole variety of of factors, is that we started seeing more research being done on specific treatments for specific disorders. Mm -hmm. So rather than looking at the overall effectiveness of psychotherapy, let's look to see how effective is cognitive behavioral therapy in treating severe depression. Mm -hmm. How effective is exposure and response prevention for treating obsessive compulsive disorder and trying to establish the efficacy of specific treatments for specific diagnoses. And that's what really led us to the empirically supported treatments um, Mm -hmm. movement. There were studies, those sorts of studies that were done back in the 1970s, but it was really, um, we're going to date ourselves a little bit here, but yes, as we were in graduate school and as we're young professionals, but it was in the the 1990s in the right. mid 90s when um, I guess we were in graduate school or even still in your yeah. case you might have been in kindergarten but I, I was I, I started graduate school in 1999 
So okay. I was in, so yes, in the 90s. Yes, I and I, I started school. in 95, yeah, so there right. you go. But, uh, and it, it was in fact in 1995 that one of yeah. the seminal publications. Wh- which one um, is that? Is that the, the... the Chambliss okay. um, et al. Uh, uh, came out. And uh, Division 12, the Division of the Society for Clinical Psychology in the American mm-hmm. Psychological Association, established criteria and started maintaining a list of empirically supported treatments for specific diagnoses. Mm-hmm. Um, and that list is still accessible online today and and is is updated and and whatnot and there came to be this great psychotherapy debate um, as Walpole called it uh, between those who supported this idea of we should be looking at what treatments are best for specific disorders versus right. we should be looking at overall effectiveness of psychotherapy is it fair and I this I don't know if if you don't have an answer to this question, just let, let us know. But is it is it fair to assume that much of this is driven by like health insurance companies and things like that, or is it does that come later? I I would say um, I don't know if I would pin it on, and and this is you know take this for what it's worth. I'm not an expert in this area, but I pin it um, a little bit more to medical model versus so the, the the notion that in many cases psychologists were, were wanting to work in primary medical settings um, whether that was working in hospitals primary care clinics VA settings things like that and if you're wanting to work in medical settings and you're wanting to prove your worth the established gold standard of research and what medical researchers understand is the randomized clinical trial. Okay. Um, that's how we test medications, right? right. Um, we randomly assign people to two groups. One gets a placebo, one gets the drug, and we look to see if the group that gets the drug does better. And, and that's what eff- efficacy studies for empirically supported treatments essentially did. We're going to mm-hmm. randomly assign people to groups um, that have the same diagnosis, and one of them is going to get treatment A, and the other one is either going to get, you know, be on a wait list or get treatment B, which is a treatment right. we already know um, has established research support, and we're going to see how these two groups fare. Okay. Okay. So, and it does feel like maybe in, in some ways that's that health insurance comes in mm-hmm. later because at a certain point they're saying we're only going to pay for treatments that are mm-hmm. uh, deemed effective. And, and I think that was part of what became this this debate was a fear that ultimately what would happen is we would have this list of empirically supported treatments and that would drive how therapists would practice. Right. That you know it wouldn't any longer be having to get insurance approval for treatment. It would be, okay, insurance company will give you approval for six sessions of treatment X, mm-hmm. which is supposed to work, you know, for the specific disorder. And of course, people raised concerns about, well, what if someone has a dual diagnosis? Um, What if you have done this research on, you know, primarily college students and the clients that you're seeing in your practice are elderly people or, you know, to what extent are people Mm -hmm. of color uh, represented in these studies? And so there were a lot of questions that were raised about generalizability. And without getting too much in the weeds here for our listeners, Mm -hmm. uh, um, 
well, it's morning for us. It might be, you know, who knows? It's 11 yeah. o'clock at night when you're listening to this. Um, I assume everyone listens to it the moment it comes out. Do well, they not? Well, I mean, that's what I would think. Yeah. Really? You I better mean, be listening. What are you be doing waiting? if you're not? <laughs> no. Uh, but, you know, we, we end up in these these questions about internal and external validity, right? right? So as we do our randomized clinical trials, we've got more internal validity and we actually have a case for, all right, if the clients are getting better, it's the treatment that caused them to get better. Mm-hmm. If we're doing more correlational studies on the effects of, of psychotherapy and it's not these randomized clinical trials, maybe they have more generalizability and external validity, but we can't actually say it was right. the treatment that caused the effect. Right. And how much of it, so one of the things I remember um, talking with, with professors about is that one of the fears sort of driving this was, was the fear of lawsuits. You know, mm-hmm. this idea that, Okay, so I'm a therapist and I use something that's not an empirically supported treatment mm-hmm. and a client doesn't get better, later mm-hmm. sues and says, hey, why weren't you using this empirically supported treatment and that sure. I could that, 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 that could potentially be, I could be negligent. You know, mm-hmm. the same way if, if a medical doctor is, you know, treating someone in a way that isn't validated through research. Um, is that something that, that drives some of this, do you know, or to, to what degree have we seen? You know, I, I don't know to what extent um, that might be the case. I think where you hear more about that is actually people using therapies where there's research to indicate that they're potentially harmful. Okay. Right. <laughs> okay, so um, that's been the other side of this is that we do have research that indicates that there are um, – treatments, I think the one that's been in the news most um, of late is conversion therapy, right? right? right. That can actually cause harm. Uh, rebirthing therapy was one of those that we saw, <laughs> yes. um, you know, lawsuits. And in fact, we we saw um, a child die. Right. Uh, rebirthing, that's where, I, I hesitate to even talk too much about it, but where you like wrap children up in mm-hmm. blankets. It's, in, it's like to simulate to yeah. simulate the birthing right. process and yes for attachment related problems yes. quote unquote yes oh. um and in fact no research to support that whatsoever and um, it actually sounds like nonsense right out of the gate so it, it, indeed indeed and and right. um yeah um so uh, you know I, I think that that has been more where uh, there has been concern or where you've heard about lawsuits is when people oh. are practicing um with some of those sorts of things i mean the american psychological association in some ways took uh, what I'm going to call a compromise approach in that they talked about um, evidence-based practice in psychology. And -hmm. their notion of evidence-based practice in psychology was that, yes, we should look at empirically supported treatments, but we should actually look at the entire research base when, when we're looking to treat a client. So it's not just about when we have a client in our office, let's say that my client is a 46-year-old Native American woman suffering from depression who um, also has panic disorder, mm-hmm. right? That I'm not just going to go to my list of empirically supported treatments for panic disorder and depression, which by the way, are different, right. <laughs> but I also want to look at the research um, on counseling Native American clients. And I want to look at research that talks about um, the important qualities of a therapeutic relationship for therapy to be successful. And that I need to um, marry that understanding of the research with my own clinical expertise as a clinician, right? That there mm-hmm. is, there's a reason that I'm here and have a brain and have been practicing for how long and, and what right. have you, and may have some understanding from that. And then also um, 
you know, put into that equation the client preferences and characteristics that mm-hmm. the the age and culture and gender and prior experiences of my client are important in, in this as well, as are my client's preferences. If my client is saying, look, I've tried therapy X before and I hated it and I'm never right. going back to it. Right. That's an important consideration. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm imagining the flow chart you have to use to get to the... Uh... The empirically supported treatment for this situation <laughs> is like, you know, it's, uh, you know, well, clients, age, gender, race, past experiences, you follow that through, what diagnosis, et cetera, yes. and finally get to the, the one perfect treatment for that person, right? No, that is really interesting. Now, in the midst of it all, you, you mentioned meta-analytic research mm-hmm. on this. Let's start by just kind of talking through in a general way what that mm-hmm. is for listeners who might sure. not... Well, because this this study, in fact, that that um, we're at least going to touch on, um, mm. is actually not a meta analysis; it's a meta scientific review. Um, mm. But to but to step back just a moment, a meta analysis would be if I, let's say, found. Um, all the studies that I could find on the effectiveness of Beck's cognitive therapy in treating depression. And then I take the the results from those studies and um, I use complex statistical analyses um, (laughs) (laughs) to come up with a summary or summary results um, from those studies. So to be able to say things like, on average, about 80% of clients saw improvement across these 15 studies of cognitive okay. therapy for depression. Okay. Now, we should. One of the things we should touch on today too is the the, the dodo bird effect, and kind of talk through that. Can we do that? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Sorry. Well, I have. I should preface things by saying I have very little memory of this. There is a study, right? Is this the is this Wampold? No. This this well, Wampold talked about has has a, a publication that has you know the dodo bird effect in the title of right. of that article, right. um, and the idea that you know all must have prizes, yes. right? That everything must be equal, but it, but gotcha. essentially um, it comes down to to this notion of hey. People who talk about the dodo bird effect as it applies to psychotherapy research that in the end therapy is effective and there's right. not a whole lot of difference yeah. amongst those specific okay. therapies and that's what i uh, okay so and that was my memory of that study and in my my okay so there's a chance that i'm gonna have to issue a correction in a in two weeks because i it has been a decade since i looked at the study but yeah. my memory of it is that they essentially surveyed recipients of therapy to ask uh, to explore whether or not they improved is that oh are you thinking about the consumer report study that might be what i that's a different so i don't have to issue a correction because you're doing it right i'm right here live i'm I'm here for you (laughs) yeah so the dodo bird effect wasn't so much a specific study it's a way that wampold talked about kind of this notion of common factors and whatnot is is my memory now of course you're asking me to go back in you know (laughs) But um, there, there was, um, gosh, I want to say again that this might have been like a '95 kind of a American psychologist uh, publication mm-hmm. that um, it became known as the Consumer Reports Study, where they did, in fact, um, survey a large number of recipients right. of psychotherapy and okay 
essentially I was mixing them this up. was the yes i was mixing them up and and that's the one they surveyed huge numbers of people yes. and and i think got details about type of therapy, therapy. things mm-hmm. like that and it found essentially it it worked yep. for the majority of people regardless of the type <laughs> of therapy regardless of the diagnosis indeed etc et yes and and i think in in fairness i did read a critique of that study once that yes. made reference and said you'd find the same thing if you asked people about seeing a psychic um you know <laughs> yes. that you'd find similar results and that's fair mm-hmm. i i would also argue that if clients are saying they're getting better then on some level they're getting better <laughs> right i mean it feels that feels true to me um not 100 percent true mm-hmm. but but true-ish yes um very very interesting okay so before we get to the to the the study that i originally asked you to talk about anything else we need to know about uh effectiveness research things like that anything you tell you because i know you break this down pretty heavily in your in your courses i do and and students do assignments related to this and you know i would say that it it's tough because i i understand as a researcher, all of the um, wonderful qualities of randomized clinical trials and the, mm-hmm. the power that they have, uh, and that that's been the gold standard of research for right. some time. Um, but I also understand that even you know, looking beyond things like the Consumer Reports study, that if we look at meta-analyses going back to the Smith, Glass, and Miller days, and um, you know, other. Uh, peer-reviewed research that we do have good support for a variety of different therapeutic approaches. And like you, um, I do have a common factors heart in, in me as well, but I understand and, you know, I think you would, you would probably, you know, go with me on this, that there are certain things like specific phobias. Mm-hmm. I'd be hard-pressed not to use some kind of exposure therapy right. to treat a specific phobia. Right. right, we have good evidence that that is um, a highly effective treatment, right. and it's also one that can be often done in a fairly short period of time, and you know, mm-hmm. and so on and so on. And so, even though we might know that therapy in general is effective, I don't know that I'd be pulling out my Carl Rogers necessarily as as the first right. tool in my toolbox for that. Right. Well, I would argue too that. Based, uh, the fact that we know that some things are harmful, and we were just mm-hmm. talking about yes. some examples of that, the fact that we know that suggests that, that this research is important. Like you can yes. only, you know, you, you have mm-hmm. to acknowledge that if we can identify things that don't work via mm-hmm. research, then on some level we must be able to identify things that work better uh, via research. Um, and I think that that is a totally reasonable thing, and it's a reasonable thing for clients to uh, – Clients going in for therapy, I think, on some level, have a right to know that we're doing things that we have a good, good sense are going to work. I mean, and I'm not someone who embraces heavily the medical model when it comes to uh, psychotherapy. But at the same time, I, I do think it's fair to think about it in a way that's similar to going to see a medical doctor, that if I did that and I, I thought that they were just guessing every step of the way without any sort without really rooted in anything i would panic um and i think our clients have the same the same right there Mm -hmm. so absolutely 
Yes. Uh, so let's get into this study. Uh, Journal of Abnormal Psych, first yes. of all, came out mm-hmm. what? Is, is it a 2019 It's publication? a 2019. So in fact, the news report, I think that you were reading about it, was from August yeah. of, of 2019. So this okay. is... This is this is breaking news, yes. really. All right. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and then we heard it, of course, from another news source. But, well, absolutely. Right. Yeah. So, but, you know, hey, <laughs> what's a national news source? Anyway? Right. right. <laughs> um, well, and so this particular study is, is actually kind of interesting because it, it takes us into yet another debate, which is the, you know, what are we calling the replication crisis that that psychology yes. is in right now? Um, where we have um, an episode on that, by the way. So oh, excellent. Um, so tell us more. Ago. Okay. Well, so I, what I would tell people to do is um, hunt down an episode with Dr. Regan Garung, um, okay. where we talked about uh, the replication crisis in the context of. Um, it, we started out with a discussion of Zimbardo because it was okay. right around the time that some some information came out about the infamous prison, prison studies, study. mm-hmm. um, and we use that to transition into basically the fact that a lot of psychology research has is not being replicated successfully, and um, so give that episode a listen. It is fascinating. Lots of great stuff there. Mm-hmm. So, all right. Well, and so this study um, took a, a look at. And we talked about these empirically supported treatments that Division 12, mm-hmm. uh, Society for Clinical Psychology, um, uh, has has put together. And in fact, for that list of empirically supported treatments, they even break it down further than that. So they talk about treatments that have strong, moderate, and um, oh, what is it, controversial, I think, support, something like that. Uh, there's a specific uh, name for it. But they break down the levels of support that they have. Um, so these... These researchers took a look at um, the the studies that supported uh, the the treatments on this list, and they did some reanalysis. And much like with the the replication um, uh, issues for other types of research, they were looking at things like should we just be examining p value as an indicator of um, effect. Right. Um, Or should we be looking at other kinds of indicators like statistical power and um, replicability indexes and and, and things like that? So how confident can we really be in the science that has supported Mm -hmm. these empirically supported treatments? And so it was a reanalysis of of all of that. And it's interesting. Um, They come away with not an indictment of empirically supported treatments per se, but with questions about the strength of the evidence to support some of those treatments. Some of them they are able to look at and say, no, nope, seems like, yep, there's there's strong evidence mm-hmm. there. And that the statistical power and and you know the science behind that seems to to make good sense. And some of those might include things like prolonged exposure therapy for PTSD or um, you know, as we were talking about um, exposure therapy right. for um, for specific phobias, but there are others where, as they looked at the analyses, they couldn't necessarily say that things that were listed as having strong evidence versus moderate mm-hmm. that there was a huge distinction right. amongst those, um, and you know, others where they were questioning, okay, wait a minute. 
would this replicate out, right? right. Do we need more more evidence here? And um, so they weren't necessarily, um, it was interesting, they referenced the dodo bird effect in this and, and said, you know, we're not necessarily supporting a dodo bird effect, but rather saying we, we have a we don't know effect, oh, right? No. That there's more that we need to know about this. And, and they, they referenced the idea that we might have widespread use, let's say, within um, a, a, a treatment clinic of a certain treatment, treatment X mm -hmm. for a certain disorder. And if what we're doing is this reanalysis and we're finding that treatment X may not be a whole lot more effective than treatment Y over here that, um, you know, is said to have moderate support or, you know, that we know has some support but wasn't on the strong support list, but treatment Y is actually faster and cheaper. Right. Why shouldn't we then potentially look at, at that? Right. Right. And so that we have more questions that need to be answered and that we may need to be looking. Um, they did see improvement in the quality of studies and in statistical power over time um, as they were looking at studies and publication years. But that, you know, we've, we're facing some of the same issues with clinical research as we are with research in general in terms of how we're analyzing results and what we're using, um, you know, is a P is less than 0.05, is that really magical? Right. Um, or do we need to be looking even more at practical significance? Do we need to um, really be paying more attention than what we have been to the power, the statistical power um, of the studies that we're conducting? Right. Right. You know, so at some point I need to do an episode on p-hacking. Um, and uh, because I, it, it seems to come up every time we talk about anything having to do with the replication crisis, this mm -hmm. comes up in a way. And it'd be nice to be able to refer people back to it yes. um, because it is complicated and it's, it is. Um, you know, so much. And so much of the replication crisis is rooted in in that, you mm -hmm. know, in, in essentially what does mm -hmm. uh, P uh, less than 0.05 mean yes. on the grand scheme of things. What do you think is the take home from this study? I mean, what should, what should, I guess, maybe think we can think about it two ways and maybe mm -hmm. it's the same, but so what should you and I as counseling psychologists take from it? And then I guess the other question is what should the average person, person take, take from, from it? it? You know, I want to start with the average person and, and, and folks who are potential clients out there. I don't, the thing I don't want people to take away from this is that somehow therapy doesn't have research support. Right. You know, I, I think that would be a flawed conclusion. Um, I, I think that what this study is actually showing is that there's strong research support um, for some specific treatments here, but that we need to continue to work on improving the quality of our studies and our sample sizes and a whole variety of, of technical kinds of, of things if we're going to be able to make the distinctions that we're trying to make between treatment A and treatment B. Right. Because those are hard questions, you know, to be able to definitively say we should do this instead of that. Mm -hmm. um, you've got to have strong evidence there, but right. it's not taking away from the notion that therapy overall, the research still strongly supports, is effective right. for most people. Not for everyone and not mm -hmm. in all cases, um, but it is. Um, this is just saying that 
we need to make sure that we're holding ourselves to a high standard, that we're using right. appropriate measures and, and methods, and that we're not going all in on a certain treatment and saying, yeah, this is it, if the evidence isn't quite there yet right. for that being superior to all other alternatives. Right. You know? Okay. Um, and I think as psychologists, as mm. counseling psychologists, um, that this debate is is complicated, as we already <laughs> know. <laughs> um, but to me, it, it actually it leads me back to this idea of evidence-based practice in psychology, going back to you know the the American Psychological Association stand that yes, you know, efficacy studies are important, and looking at empirically supported treatments that's important, um, but that we have to look at that in the context of the entire research base that we have and um, also consider our own expertise mm -hmm. and also consider our, our clients because that's going to be that formula of looking at all of those things is going to be what leads us to do the best work for our clients. And looking at the entire research base means also looking at studies like this that might increase my confidence in certain treatments that I'm using but might also lead me to, hmm, okay, maybe there are some alternatives right. in this situation or in, in that situation. Right. Very nice. Thank you for that. So when we come back, Dr. Vespia has some research for us that's going to have you feline great in a segment we like to call What's Good. All right, this is Ryan Martin, host of Psychology and Stuff, and I want you to know about a brand new Phoenix Studios podcast called Cannonball, where Chuck Rybeck and I talk with experts about canonical work from across disciplines. From film to music to literature to video games and more, we talk about the great works. Our first episode just went live, and it's a really great interview about Super Mario Brothers with Dr. Brian Carr. I learned a ton, and you will too. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. We're back. Tell me, Chris, what's good? Well, what's good in my universe right now as a cat lover <laughs> is that I read yesterday, in fact, or, or the day before, that some some researchers have replicated the, the strange situation um, attachment research with cats. Nice. I'm, I'm, I'm loving this. <laughs> um, and, and apparently... Cats can, in fact, be securely attached to their owners, nice. and the percentages that they're finding of securely attached cats are very similar to what they find for dogs. So all of you dog lovers out there right. who are hating on us cat people yeah, <laughs> and saying that cats aren't affectionate or you know, well, don't love us. That's the running joke, right? That cats yeah. don't care when you come home. They don't, yep. So, yeah. so if I'm remembering the strange situation uh, correctly, the study was essentially parent and child in a room, child mm -hmm. playing. There's, a, I think there's a stranger in the room as well. well so Some, a, a there's stranger, variations. There's maybe? variations. Stranger, okay. a stranger in the room. Stranger, or mom leaves. Yep. Stranger there. Uh, yep. yep. So, so I think, I think in this case, this study was done a long time ago. It was mom in the room. Mom yep. leaves. Mom comes back, mm -hmm. um, and they they watch to see how child reacts. Is that mm -hmm. right? And then yes. and then we get like securely attached, anxious, avoidant, ambivalent. I can't remember. Um, okay. So uh, I am not a developmental psychologist. <laughs> that has been made clear. Um, however, uh, essentially the study looked something like that. So is that what they did with the well, cats? Well, and so this is very similar to what they did with the cats and really what they were doing and, and what they did with humans as well is they looked to see how did the child, and in this case the cat, react to um, mom or 
human companion, um, mm-hmm. leaving, and then how do they react in uh, when they are reunited? Okay. Right? And uh, so, you know, does the cat ignore the, the human companion? Does the cat, you know, rush to greet said human companion? You know, and, and right. all of those, all of those good, all those good things. And, and you know, isn't it wonderful to know um, mm-hmm. that apparently they, they linked to an earlier study from earlier this year that that was released in the press that showed that cats do indeed recognize their names Uh um so when you're calling your your cat and they're not responding to their name they're just ignoring you (laughs) okay that is good to know (laughs) so you know um, there's a little bit of both there but but at any rate the take-home message from the from the researchers appeared to be that Mm -hmm. yeah in fact your your cats are, are bonded to you in many cases you know as someone who does not love um having uh, just having to respond the second a person like calls my name or what doesn't yeah. want, I don't want to stop what I'm doing. Sometimes I just want to do what I'm doing. Exactly. I, I get this. I think about this with my kids all the time that like they'll be doing something and we'll call like, hey guys, it's time to go. And then I think I would hate it if somebody like just was trying to dictate my life that way. <laughs> like, dad, it's time to go. Gotta do this now. Now, now, now. Like, that would suck. So I get ignoring yeah. someone when they call your name. Like if I had that out, if I could just pretend I didn't know my name, I would use it. <laughs> well, and, so. and if it would be just seen as cool, right? Yeah. Because, you know, you're the cool cat. You're being aloof. You're being, you know. True that. Yeah. You know, right? Very, but, very but no, instead it's actually seen as, you know, in, not being very compliant and rude and right. a whole variety of other things with, with human beings. And, yeah. In your opinion, should we be, in your professional opinion, Christian, yes. should we be replicating all of our research with cats? <laughs> Is this is this a thing that we need to maybe not all of it because we've done some mean stuff right like yeah. I don't want to I don't want to do learned helplessness with cats no because that was mean in the first place yeah yeah um, but and uh, you know the Stanford Prison Study they'd probably just crawl through the bars yeah I, you know yeah. so it's not that one's not going to work no and I, that also cruel also yeah um, so okay so I yeah I don't I don't really know and I'm, I'm honestly I, I don't think the research we've been talking about today I, okay. I have a feeling talk therapy. Okay. It's kind of hard yeah. if, you know, you don't have effective well, I, two-way communication and... and um, I do a lot of survey research, and so <laughs> <laughs> my all, results are not going to be great. Yeah. So, yeah. okay. Also, so maybe not all of our research, but some of it. Probably not all of it. Some of it we could probably replicate. You know, so. there the occasional... Yeah. There's the occasional thing. Um, so, you know, why, why not, I guess? Yeah. Um, on the other hand, people might also ask, why? Yeah. <laughs> My my uh, research methods professor, I'm going to leave people with this joke. Don't call me. Call my research methods <laughs> professor once you hear this. Uh, he said the following. You know why a cat is the perfect experimental animal? Because there's nothing you can do to a cat that's unethical. I know. Wow. I know. Don't okay. call me. I, I heartily I'm... disagree. <laughs> um, and for those of you who need a better cat story than that, one of my graduate school professors named their cat Tukey because, wait for it, the cat was a little unusual and they saw the cat as honestly significantly different. If you don't know your post hoc analyses... <laughs> Google Tukey's HSD, nice. and you will know that my graduate school professor named their cat after a statistical test. Yes, That's indeed. That's pretty cool. I like that. <laughs> I like that. You know, I had a dog named Kinsey, mm-hmm. and everyone thought it was named after the famous sex researcher, <laughs> Alfred Kinsey. 
She was not. She was named <laughs> after Kinsey Milhone, uh, the lead character in those Alphabet mysteries. A is for alibi, oh. B is for body. Um, yes. So we called her Kinsey Milhound because nice. I, I like a good animal pun. So Very nice. There we have it. So that is going to do it for this episode's special thanks to our guest, Dr. Chris Vespia. Chris, thank you so much for being here. If people want to know more about you and your work, psychology website, basically, for you Psychology UW-Green website Bay. would be great, yes. Outstanding. Um, for our next episode, we're going to talk about music and the brain in an episode inspired by my youngest son, until then, follow us on Facebook at Psych and Stuff. You can follow me on Twitter at RyCMart. Go there for additional information about psychology, ask questions, or even suggest an episode. I also want to thank our producer, Kate Farley, who does all the things, and our podcast artist, Kimberly Vlees, who just designed our really amazing Cannonball podcast art. I love it. Thank you, Kimberly. Until next time, keep being amazing. Keep being amazing.